behalf of us all. Let's pray. Our Father, we have come for bread this morning. Not the loaves and the fishes. Though that would be grand, but so much better to be like Mary and to sit at your feet, to eat the bread of life of the words of Jesus, to drink from the water, the streams of living water that Amen. flow from Him through the Spirit. Amen. We come. We come for you. You are all that we need. Sean is willing to be a servant, an instrument. And so now take his voice, the concepts, the words that you've put into his heart and mind to share with us today and feed us. And make us thirsty and hungry for more. Mm, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A couple of quotations for you as I started. Should be on. Okay. Can you read them without your phone? Can I read them without my phone? I can, but I'm choosing not to. As I was thinking about the presentation this morning, I thought of sharing these kind of somewhat lengthy quotes with you. The first one is from the book Faith and Works, page 38. Like I said, they're kind of a little bit lengthy, and so just stick with me. We don't have them in your hands, but some of you may have a smartphone like I do, and you may be able to look them up yourself as I'm reading them. But, listen to these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful words. L. White says, Some seem to feel that they must be on probation and must prove to the Lord that they are reformed. Let me read that again. Some Some seem to feel that they must be on probation and must prove to the Lord that they are reformed before they can claim His blessing. But these dear souls may claim the blessing even now. They must have His grace, the Spirit of Christ, to help their infirmities, or they cannot form a Christian character. Jesus loves to have us come to Him just as we are, sinful, helpless, dependent. That's the only prerequisite for us coming to Jesus is that we are sinful, helpless, and dependent. Now, that's one of the biggest steps that we can ever take is to come to that realization. In fact, that's the whole ball of wax right there is if we can come to that realization. She goes on to say, Repentance as well as forgiveness is the gift of God through Christ. Amen. 
Repentance and forgiveness is a gift from God through Christ. It is through the influence of the Holy Spirit that we are convicted of sin and feel our need of pardon. None but the contrite are forgiven, but it is the grace of God that makes the heart penitent. He is acquainted with all our weaknesses and infirmities, and he will help us. Now notice what she goes on to say. Some who come to God by repentance and confession and even believe that their sins are forgiven still fail of claiming as they should the promises of God. That's really sobering to think that I could actually still believe that my sins are forgiven and yet I'm not claiming the promises of God. They do not see that Jesus is an ever-present Savior. And they are not ready to commit the keeping of their souls to Him. I have to, I have to, be, I have to be completely honest with you. I'm afraid that I am in that place myself. Far too often, not even just far too often, but even right at this very moment. I'm not giving my soul to God's keeping. And how he longs for me to do that. And they are not ready to commit the keeping of their souls to him, relying upon him to perfect the work of grace begun in their hearts. While they think they are committing themselves to God, there is a great deal of self-dependence. There are conscientious souls that trust partly to God and partly to themselves. They do not look to God to be kept by His power, but depend upon watchfulness against temptation and the performance of certain duties for acceptance with Him. This last line, I'm not wanting to judge anybody, but I heard recently of a brother who fell. He was, a, he was in the ministry. He fell. And in a letter that he wrote repenting of his sins, he said, you know what, I thought I had guarded the avenues of my mind, but I just didn't do enough. She says there are some of us who, are, who depend upon watchfulness as if it was left up to us. Depend upon watchfulness against temptation and the performance of certain duties for acceptance with Him. There are no victories in this kind of faith. How many victories? There are no victories in this kind of faith. It's not about us trying to be watchful, trying to keep ourselves, trying to guard the avenues of our minds because we cannot do that, friends. We cannot do that. There's no victory in that kind of faith. What we need is the faith of Jesus. Such persons toil to no purpose. Wow, what an existence. To be working all your life but for no purpose. And they find no rest until their burdens are laid at the feet of Jesus. There is need of constant watchfulness and of earnest loving devotion, but these will come naturally when the soul is kept by the power of God through faith. We can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to commend ourselves to divine favor. We must not trust at all to ourselves or to our good works, but when as erring, sinful beings we come to Christ, we may find rest in His love. God will accept everyone that comes to Him trusting wholly in the merits of a crucified Savior. Love springs up in the heart. There may be no ecstasy of feeling, but there is an abiding, peaceful trust. Every burden is light. Who said that being a Christian is hard, friends? Who says that being saved is hard? 
She says, every burden is light, for the yoke which Christ imposes is what? Easy. Duty becomes a delight, and sacrifice a pleasure. The path that before seems shrouded in darkness becomes bright with beams from the Son of Righteousness. This is walking in the light as Christ is in the light. Don't you want that to be your experience? One more quotation for you. Again, this one's a lengthy one. Faith and Works, 38. Faith and Works, 38. This one is taken from the 1888 materials, page 896. She's, she's writing this, by the way, to a bunch of pastors, what she's writing here. But you can listen along, those who are not, who are not paid ministers. This is 896. All right. There is danger of presenting the truth in such a way that the intellect is exalted, leaving the souls of the hearers unsatisfied. A correct theory of the truth may be presented, and yet there may not be manifested the warmth of affection that the God of truth requires every one of his messengers to cherish and manifest. Listen to this now. The religion of many is very much like an icicle, freezingly cold. The hearts of not a few are still unmelted, unsubdued. They cannot touch the heart of others because their own hearts are not surcharged with the blessed love that flows from the heart of Christ. There are others who speak of religion as a matter of the will. Have you heard such presented before? It's a matter of the will. They dwell upon stern duty as if it were a master ruling with a scepter of iron, a master stern, inflexible, all-powerful, devoid of the sweet, melting love and tender compassion of Christ. Still others go to the opposite extreme, making religious emotions prominent. Have you come across such individuals? Have you been one of those individuals? And on special occasions, manifesting intense zeal, their religion seems to be more of the nature of a stimulus rather than an abiding faith in Christ. True ministers know the value of the inward working of the Holy Spirit upon human hearts. They are content with simplicity in religious services. Instead of making much of popular singing, they give their principal attention to the study of the word and render praise to God from the heart. Above the outward adorning, they regard the inward adorning, the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit in their mouth is found no guile. In the lives of many more ministers, there should be revealed the eternal verity of the kingdom of God. Those who practice the truth in the daily life are represented as trees of righteousness bearing the fruits of the Spirit. Friends, we want to have love and obedience flowing from the heart rather than my willpower. Because it's a life of futility. It's like we're running in quicksand, working hard but getting nowhere. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I am in all honesty, confused about why I'm up here. Because I shouldn't be up here, Lord. I need, I need you to be up here and not me. Amen. So, somehow, hide me behind the cross. 
Because nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Amen. May we see you in all your beauty and matchless charm. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Open once again to the book of Job, if you will. Those who were here, our first, the first time I shared, we paused for a few moments in the book of Job. We're going to go back there again and ponder this question, this very poignant, and if I may even attribute some type of appropriate question to Satan, this very appropriate question that Satan asked. Notice what we read in the book of Job, chapter 1. And we're going to start once again in verse 6. We were there yesterday morning. But notice what, no more than likely, Moses records in the book of Job. We read in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Verse 9, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing. Let me read that last verse again, verse 9. So, and, so Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Seems like a strange question to ask, and yet, like I said, it's a very appropriate question. I think it's a very appropriate question for us to reflect upon in our own lives. Do I serve God for nothing? Some of you are saying, well, what do you mean? Hold on, do I serve God for nothing? In other words, do I serve God without any motivation of trying to get something in return? Or am I serving God for the rewards and the goodies that I feel should be coming my way eventually? Or even continuously in my own life? I've come across this book that I've found to be very interesting. If you want a different opinion of the book, you can ask my dear bride, <laughs> because she, being a teacher, is kind of dismayed by the implications of the book. Did all of you get the handout that should have been passed out? If there's anybody who didn't, I think we have a few extras. It's, it's just one page. As we'll discover going forward, it should be two pages, but I didn't get the right uh, version to Kelly, and so we're not going to get all the quotations, but you'll be all right, I think. So we have a few more who need them. All right, keep your hands raised nice and high. Thank you very much, Arnett. Thank you, Kelly. All right, we have quite a number that need it. Okay, anybody else? Everybody have one? Okay. So this book that I came across, I don't know how I came across it. I think I was in the seminary and I was in a um, 
some type of seminar. And I, I found, I just happened to find la this past spring a sheet of paper that I had written notes on from the seminary, and I noticed that this, this title of this book was there. And I said, oh, it sounds like an interesting book. The book is called Punished by Rewards. Has anybody here ever read this book? I know we have a few teachers here, yes. And, and perhaps those who are teachers would take the same mindset that my wife took about the book. And that is it's, it's uh, out there, to say the least. I read it not, not from a teacher's mindset, but from a spiritual mindset. What this author proposes is that we are actually punishing our children and we are punishing others, those who may be employed by us or those who may be working for us or in school or our own children. We are actually punishing them by offering them rewards. So I was very intrigued by that, very, very intrigued by the implications of it because I felt like this had parallels to what I understand from Scripture about the New Covenant experience. We've touched upon it a little bit this week so far, and we've, we've, we've already discussed it a little bit for this particular message. But the idea that we could actually be punished by rewards... You see, what the author proposes is that when we offer children rewards, when we offer employees rewards, we actually undermine the very thing we are trying to achieve. And what we are ultimately doing is we are dehumanizing individuals. We are dehumanizing people because we are, we are treating them as though they were machines and or animals. You know, we have dogs, we have other pets that we offer them little rewards. If you, you know, if you bark, you know, I'll give you a treat. If you, if you roll over, I'll give you, you know, a little, a little biscuit. And so we, we, we treat human beings like this at times. We say, you know, Johnny, if you're a good boy, guess what you can get? Guess what I'll give you? And the reason it's actually punishment is because the minute the reward is no longer offered, Guess what? That child is now being punished when before they were being rewarded. Notice this first quotation you have there. I was intrigued by the secular mind drawing out these parallels. He wrote, It may seem a bit of a stretch to compare pay-for-performance plans to religious notions of redemption or enlightenment or karma, which are decidedly different from behaviorism. Now, when he uses the term behaviorism, he is talking about behavior modification. That's what this whole, this whole idea is of offering rewards or threatening with a stick, right? We either hear about the stick or the carrot. It's called behavior modification. What you are most concerned with is changing a person's behavior. And not only is it dehumanizing, but as we are going to discover, it doesn't work. And here's a little sneak peek for you. Our, our, our prophet, Ellen White, says the same thing. It doesn't work. So, he goes on to say, which are decidedly different from behaviorism, but the if-then, have you heard this idea, if-then? If-then contingency is just as salient in the latter set of idea. Ideas. We have been taught that ethical conduct will be rewarded and evil acts punished, even if it does not happen in this time. We have also been taught that good acts or hard work should be rewarded, and this position leads some people to incline toward pop behaviorism regardless of the results it produces. But pop behaviorism is by its very nature dehumanizing. 
Notice these, th these uh, four studies. I hope you stick with me here. There's a little bit of, of uh, ground to cover. But here's examples where showing that it actually does not work. Studies that have been done. There were two groups. One was given $5 whenever they lost weight. The others given nothing. The, the group that got $5 lost more weight initially but gained it all back and then some after five months. The group that was not offered money kept getting slimmer. Interesting. People who, who study this, they say to themselves, we don't understand why this happens. They're, they're expecting one thing, one result, and when, when they're getting these backs, they're like, this is just absolutely mind-boggling. It goes against everything we've ever believed in psychology. Study number two. In 1991, individuals were offered rewards to turn in weekly reports about quitting smoking. Others were not given rewards. Twice as many from the reward group passed in their reports the first week, but by three months later, they were smoking again more often than those who were not offered rewards. Study number three, or example number three. 28 programs studied over a six-year period where companies tried to motivate their employees to wear seatbelts. The result, programs that offered prize or cash for buckling up found changes in seatbelt use ranging from a 62% increase to a 4% decrease. Boy, you want to save lives, you're actually destroying life by offering a reward. Programs without rewards averaged a 152% increase. Wow. Lastly, and our friend Joshua can, can speak to this perhaps, professional artists do less creative work when that work is commissioned. Do you find that to be true in your own experience? <laughs> Thank you. We have a living, breathing verification of that. These are just some examples of showing how offering a reward is actually counterproductive. You say, well, what are you getting at here? Should I go, not no longer offer my children what we often call incentives to be well-behaved? Now, let me be clear. We are told quite plainly in the spirit of prophecy that there are times in our children's lives where they need a carrot or a stick because... They are not capable of cognitively making a decision based upon principle rather than getting something in return. I will do all that I can in my power to make sure Camden does not run out onto that street. I will do anything within my power to make sure he doesn't kill himself. But there comes a point in every child's life, and this is a struggle. I'm, I only have two little ones that are no older than two, so I'm not as experienced in this, but there comes a time, and every parent has to figure this out, when it has to go from a carrot or a stick to flowing out of the heart. Right? Right? Every child has to learn the principles of the gospel, or else it'll just be something that they're doing because they are being rewarded to do, or that they are being punished because they did it. Last thing that this author says, notice this is a little long, but stick with me here. Why don't people keep acting the way they were initially reinforced for acting? The answer is that reinforcements do not generally alter the attitudes and emotional commitments that underlie our behaviors. They do not make deep, lasting changes because they are aimed at affecting only what we what? Do. do. 
if you think there is nothing to human beings other than what we do, that we are only repertoires of behavior, then this criticism will not trouble you. It may even seem meaningless. If, on the other hand, you think that actions reflect and emerge from who a person is, what she thinks and feels, expects and wills, then interventions that just control actions wouldn't be expected to help a child grow into a generous person or even help an adult decide to lose weight. What rewards and punishments do is induce compliance. And this they do very well. If your objective is to get people to obey and, and order, in order to show up on time and do what they're told, then bribing or threatening them may be sensible strategies. But if your objective is to get long-term quality in the workplace, to help students become careful thinkers and self-directed learners, or to support children in developing good values, then rewards like punishments are absolutely useless. In fact, as we are beginning to see, they are worse than useless. They are actually counterproductive. Say and ask God, does Job serve God for nothing? We talked a little bit yesterday about the idea that many of us feel as though we deserve more than what we're getting. Many of us go about our religious experience not as debtors, but as those who are owed something. And what we subtly do, friends, is we turn God into the debtor and us into the creditor. Let's go in your Bibles now to the book of Luke. We're going to look at two stories side by side somewhat. We'll spend more time on one of them than the other. But go to Luke chapter 15, if you will. Luke chapter 15. We go to this great chapter, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, what I like to call the Lost and Found Trilogy. Beautiful stories of God's grace and His love and His mercy and His pursuing us. But notice what we read in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 11. This is a parable that all of us are very familiar with, but we're going to focus on something a little different than we normally do this morning. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them to his livelihood. He divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to, the far, to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, how much? When he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Verse 15. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, somewhere just recently I heard a preacher share how that was the greatest line in all of Scripture. But when he came to himself, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to, the fa to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You know, this young man 
had no pretension of feeling worthy of anything beyond what he had already been given. You notice that? He doesn't come to his father. He doesn't plan to come to his father and say, Yo, Dad, here I am again. I wasted everything. Now come and make me your son again and give me the rest of what's in your bank account. He feels a sense of unworthiness and he just wants to be a servant. You know, there are some people, by the way, who get very uncomfortable with the idea of of us actually serving God. They say, oh, don't talk about us being servants. That's, that's, that's below us. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you what? Yeah. Friends, and praise the Lord. That's what God calls us. But when the heart is gripped by grace, we feel worthy only of being a servant. Because we know where we've been. We know what we've come from, from where we've come. That's why Paul, when you go through his epistles, almost every single epistle, he starts out by saying, Paul, a what? Servant. Servant. You see, Jesus looks at us and calls us friends. Jesus looks at us and calls us his children, but the heart that has been humbled by the cross of Calvary says, no, 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 I'm only worthy to be a servant of yours. Notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Can you imagine that scene there with that young man? He's walking down the road trying to perfect the speech he's going to share with his dad. and All of a sudden he sees this man coming in the distance, running, running, running. He's saying, who in the world is that? You know, what we don't quite appreciate <coughs> is that in that culture, a dignified man did not run, just did not do it. Yet the compassion of the father compelled him to do so. He was so excited, so overwhelmed with joy that the son he had been praying for, the son he had, he had been longing for, was now returning home. And so he takes off. And he runs up to him and he throws his arm around him and he starts to kiss him. Verse 21, And the son said to him, he just goes right into his prepared speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can go to the next line saying, Make me your servant, the father cuts in. But the father said to his servants, oh, sorry, and the, the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. What do robes, what do clothing, what does it represent in Scripture? Character, Character, righteousness of Christ. Put the robe on him. Place it right on him. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. The ring represented the authority in the family. This child is now getting the authority, the power back to be a son of God. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God says to us. If you receive me, I will give you the power and the authority to be a child of God. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us, notice that, and let us eat and be merry. That's very important. And let us eat and be merry. You know, God longs for fellowship and relationship with us. God is omni-relational. He is all about relationship. 
He is ever seeking to come into deeper relationship and fellowship with us. He doesn't say, okay, my son's come back. Let's put the robe on him. Let's put the ring on his finger. And let's have him go what sons do. He says, no, 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 no. We are going to eat together and fellowship with one another. But notice what happens next. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Friends, if you think that the prodigal story of the prodigal son is about a son coming home and taking the initiative, you didn't read what the father just said. My son was lost and has been what? Found. The Holy Spirit brought him back, didn't he? The goodness of God brought him back. Verse 24 continues, He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. And the story takes a tragic turn, doesn't it? Takes a tragic turn. Now his older son was in the field, presumably working, right? Working, working. And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Friends, do you ever get angry when you hear about good things happening to other people? That's a rhetorical question. Do you ever get angry when you hear about good things happening to other people? Or conversely, do you ever get happy when you hear about bad things happening to other people? I'm, I'm afraid and ashamed to admit that I too often take one of those two postures. You know, why, why do we do that? Ah, you know, I'm so thankful that somebody else knows what I'm going through, so I'm glad it's happened to them too. Oh man, you know, I deserve better than they did, and yet look at them. The older brother became angry and would not go, and therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. That too was a very humble thing for the father to do. You see, the father was still pursuing his older son as well, wasn't he? Could have folded his arms and said, well, you know, tough luck for him. We're having a good time in here. If he doesn't want to come in, psh, forget about him. The father goes out and pleads with him as he pleads with all of us. He pleaded with him, so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been your child. I have been your son. That's what he says, right? Lo, these many years I have been your son. It's not what it says, is it? Lo, these many years I have been serving you. Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I believe Jesus, when he shared the story, and of course Jesus more than likely did not speak in Greek, you understand, but the, 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 the recorders of the stories wrote in Greek, and so they were able to bring out what Jesus was really getting at, and we even appreciate it in English. Before, we were, we were reading about how the servants were instructed to do certain things. You remember the father told the servants to go out and do this and do that? 
And then we see the same Greek word, and even in English we see the same word, appearing when the attitude of the older son is brought out. I have been serving you. I have been serving you. I'm sad to say, but I've, I've sat beside people before who just received bad news about the fact that they have cancer. And all of us are capable of doing this, but I've heard sentiment expressed before. You know what? I've been a vegan for so many years. How could this happen to me? I have been serving God with my diet for so many years. How could he let it happen to me? And I've even heard people literally say, I'm so mad at God for letting this happen. How could he do this? I have siblings who eat as unhealthy as you can eat, and they're fine, Lord. Lord, I've been serving you for so many years. I deserve better. You owe me, God. You owe me. Older brother, that's the posture, that's the attitude he takes. Because God has become the debtor in the relationship. I've worked for so long, you know, I, I've been making minimum wage. Where, when am I going to get my payday? Notice what the son goes on to say, though. Lo, these many years I have been serving you, I never transgressed your commandments. I was being dutiful. Everything you said, you said, jump, I said, how high? Everything you wanted me to do, I did. I was faithful. Everything you wanted me to do, I never transgressed your commandments at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with you. Is that what he says? You never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. I never noticed that until this morning. You see, the father, when he instructed the servants to go slay the fatted calf, he said, I want to eat with my son, my younger son who has come home. The older son wanted no fellowship with the father because it was simply a master-servant relationship. He said, you know, I'm just serving you out of duty. I want you to pay me, and I'm going to go hang out with my friends, and we're going to have a good time. But you've never provided that for me. Friends, how many of us are serving God? out of duty. But we want no fellowship with him. We want to go out and fellowship with anybody under the sun but God. I can only confess in my own life that far too often that's been my attitude and my experience. Go back with me to the book of... Well, we're already in Luke, but go back to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We have a contrast here in Luke again between two people. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, being Jesus, of course. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. The Pharisee we know, of course, was Simon the leper. Jesus had healed. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner... That's interesting. The woman in the city who was a sinner. 
When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet beside him, behind him, weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man... This man, if he knew, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain what? Creditor. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. Friends, right now, God presently has about 7 billion debtors, doesn't he? And all of us in here are among that group. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. You know what intrigues me more about this little, most about this little parable is that Jesus does not tell Simon which one in the story he is. Jesus does not say, you know what, this woman here, she has been forgiven 500 denarii, you've been forgiven 50, that's why she loves me more. That's why she's more appreciative. He doesn't say that. He leaves it up to Simon and to the reader to try to figure out where in the story we come into play. And I think, perhaps, the reason that so many of us find ourselves in the position of Simon, and we find ourselves in the position of the older son, is because we do not realize how much we've been forgiven. We do not realize the amount of debt that we have really worked up by virtue of doing one seemingly insignificant sin. You know, being a lifelong Seventh-day Adventist, and I was just reading this morning... Uh, a testimony of an individual who, you know, for years spent her life out on the streets and and uh, committing all sorts of terrible, heinous things. And I read that and I say, wow, that, that, that doesn't sound like my life at all. I've been a lifelong Seventh-day Adventist. My dad could tell you, my mother could tell you, the worst thing I ever did, and maybe this is as bad as it comes, but in some of your minds, the worst thing I ever did was I was in a rock band in high school. <laughs> You know, I've, I say that somewhat facetiously because in some respects, that's not a bad thing at all. Listen to what I'm saying. Because there are things I do that are far worse. I know that may come as a shock to some of you. Wait a minute, rock band, wait a Friends, I am a self-centered brat. I am a self-centered brat, which is far worse now, I could argue that being in a rock band was fulfilling my self-centeredness. But my self-centeredness, my anger, my bitterness, my jealousy, 
my little white lies where I'm trying to make myself come out looking a little better. These things are the 500 denarii that I have been forgiven much. What about you? Do you think that perhaps, possibly, if you realized how much you've been forgiven, your life would take on a lot different posture? See, we say, you know, I'm a pretty good, I'm a pretty good Christian. I haven't done all these big things. I go to church every week. I pay my tithe every time I get more money. I pay, I pay my tithe on the mint and the cumin. I do it all. Yeah, you know, I, I don't necessarily like the person that sits next to me in church. But you know, it's not that bad a thing. It's not that big a deal. That's not that big of a problem. I've been, I've been faithful for my whole life. I've been serving God. And Jesus says to us, you have been forgiven much. You have been forgiven much. Will you not respond to me in love? See, what Christ is trying to do to us is change our hearts. Amen. That's what the whole ball of wax, that's what the whole ball game is about. He's trying to change our hearts. He's not trying to turn us into automated machines. He's not more concerned with obedience than our hearts. Because he knows that if we're simply working on the reward system, it's not going to last. It's not going to last. You've heard these quotations perhaps before. These are the ones that are not in your study guide. But Ellen White makes these profound statements. It is not the fear of punishment or the hope of everlasting rewards that lead disciples of Christ to follow him. Now there are many people, many well-meaning people, many great Christians who have been brought to Christ through those methods and means. And I say praise the Lord that you have been brought to the Lord because you were promised an eternal crown of glory. Praise the Lord. But Christ is now trying to change your experience over into a heart obedience that is not dependent upon what you're going to get in return. It is solely dependent upon what we talked about yesterday, what you should, where you should be compared to where you are right now. Where you should be, if you didn't hear yesterday, you didn't let it sink in, where, where you should be is non-existing right now. That's the only lot that any of us deserve, but by the grace of God, we've all been given life. It is not the fear of punishment or the hope of everlasting reward that leads the disciples of Christ to follow him. They behold the Savior's matchless love revealed throughout his pilgrimage on earth from the manger of Bethlehem to Calvary's cross and the sight of him attracts, it softens and subdues the soul. Love awakens in the heart of the beholders. They hear his voice and they follow him. Does Job Fear God for nothing? The implication is that yes, he does. When we get to the book of, end of the book of Job, yes, Job fears God for nothing. And then we finally hear him say from his own lips, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Amen. Though he slay me. I'm sure you've been perhaps exposed a little bit to some of the 
controversy that has surrounded two things. They're essentially the same, but different labels. Spiritual formation and the emerging church. How many of you have heard of these phrases before? They are, are, are things that have been creeping into our particular denomination. And uh, it has everyone talking, and some people are, are really calling others out on it. Some are really naming the demons, so to speak. And I believe that there is a place to lovingly try to call people to a higher place. Amen? But we are to do so in love. Amen. We are to do so through the eyes of faith. Remember, we are not to be suspicious of one another because God is not suspicious of us. He is not always trying to read our motives. He knows our motives, first of all. But he's not always trying to, to pin us down like we're the worst people in the world. So we are to very lovingly hold one another accountable. But I've been uh, in dialogue with some individuals recently about this topic. And uh, it, came, it was brought to my attention that this whole spiritual formation idea was really introduced to Protestantism by... Ignatius of Loyola, who is the founder of the Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits. And so I had been dialoguing recently with a colleague of mine who I know who's a pastor elsewhere in the United States, and he has a lot of experience, used to be a Catholic actually, and sometimes it feels like he's being still a little bit of a Catholic apologist. But he said, you know, you have to read Ignatius before you make these judgments about what he said. See, there are these things, that this, this material that he wrote called the spiritual exercises. And this is really the basis for these spiritual disciplines that are being promoted within the Protestant world. Some people say, no, 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 they're not, they're not, they're not. But I, can't, I, I started to read them. I said, how can you say they're, they're not? And what this colleague of mine was trying to argue is that this, these are simple exercises and that they do not bring out Ignatius's beliefs or theology. I said, are you kidding me? You cannot teach methods without also teaching theology. You cannot teach practices without also bringing out what you believe. So I started reading Ignatius's spiritual exercises, not for personal edification, I want to assure you, but for a little bit of grappling with what he really was trying to bring out. These are, this is, the, when, this is probably about, this is all the spiritual exercises that he, he uh, recommends and about a third of the way through. Before this, it's, it's very startling, but when I came across this, I, I just shuddered. And this is what our spiritual formation practices are often based on. This is one of the things that he recommends, actually five things. Notice this. The first prelude is the composition which is here to see with the sight of the imagination the length, breadth, and depth of hell. Okay? The second, to ask for what I want, it will be here to ask for interior sense of the pain which the damned suffer in order that if, through my faults, I should forget the love of the eternal Lord, at least the fear of the pains may help me not to come into sin. The first point will, to be, will be to see with the sight of the imagination the great fires and the souls as in bodies of fire. 
The second, to hear with the ears wailings, howlings, cries, blasphemies, blasphemies against Christ our Lord and against all his saints. The third, to smell with the smell, smoke, sulfur, dregs, and putrid things. The fourth, to taste with the taste bitter things like tears, sadness, and the worm of conscience. The fifth, to touch with the touch, that is to say, how the fires touch and burn the souls. Boy, any of you want to be a Christian if that's what it's all about? This is a way to divert us from doing bad things. This is a way to bring us into a deeper spiritual experience with God. What does Alan White say? It is not the fear of punishment or the hope of reward. Now, some of us would put it in a positive way. We'd say, close your eyes and imagine the beautiful street of gold. Imagine, just taste with your mouth that fruit that will be waiting for you when you get there. Just hear with your ears the beautiful Hosanna cries that we'll we'll hear when we walk through the pearly gates. According to Ellen White, that's no better. Because we're, we're serving God, not for nothing as Job did, but we're serving God because we're motivated by external things about what we can get in return from God. Here's another one from Patriarchs and Prophets. Love to God is the very foundation of religion. This is Patriarchs and Prophets, page 523. To engage in his service merely from the hope of reward or the fear of punishment would avail nothing. Would avail nothing. Open, listen to this. Open apostasy would not be more offensive to God than hypocrisy and mere formal worship. Wow. Wow. Does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? Or is he like the older son who has been serving God for many, many years and then crying about his brother receiving grace? Crying because his brother is getting a party when the older brother wanted his due so he could go out and party with his friends turning his back on the God, the Father that he was allegedly serving for many years. A few months ago, I began a little bit of a dialogue with a young lady that I've known for quite a while. Uh, She knew my wife before she ever knew me, but I've known her as well for a little while. And she had somehow come across one of the sermons that I had posted on my Facebook account and she listened to it. And so she wanted to interact with me on it. She wanted to give me a little feedback. She had been struggling for a long time with her spiritual experience. She admitted to me that she has been one who never wanted to follow the rules. Never want to follow the rules. There's a rule, I don't want to follow it. I want to live in rebellion of those rules. So she said, you know, I'm sensing for the first time a deeper desire to have a walk with Christ. And I don't know what to do. I'm not sure what I should do. So I shared some words of encouragement with her and I I made it clear to her that it's not about what she does. 
It's not about what she does, it's about what Christ is trying to do for her. Do we believe that Christ is pursuing us? Do we believe that once he finds us, that he just doesn't leave us and say, okay, now it's your turn to do what you need to do? No, Christ continues to pursue us. We're told in Psalm 23, verse 6, his goodness and his mercy follow us or pursue us every day of our life. Every day. From beginning to end. Seen most clearly, of course, on the cross there next to Jesus. The very last breath that that criminal drew. He had the assurance of salvation. So I say, you know, it's not about what you're doing. It's about what God is doing. It's about you simply responding to what God is doing on your behalf. So I said, you know, if I could just make a recommendation. This is not about you finding God. It's about you just placing yourself in a position to be in fellowship with God. I'd say, just go through the Bible and read one of the Gospels. Just open up and, and, and taste and see that God is good. Because as Cliff said in his prayer, we want to be fed, but we also want to be hungry when we're all done, don't we? God is trying to make us continuously hungry. It's not just about filling us, because if we're filled, we'll never come back to him. He says, I want to make you hungry. So I said, just read one of the Gospels, and I recommended another book for her that, that was you know, outside of Scripture, and so I sent that to her. She started reading it. You know, let me just say before I go to the end of the story that this young lady is still a work in progress. And if you think she's any different than any, any of the rest of us, we need a reality check. But she's a still a work in progress. But I believe that God is still going to bring her life to completion. I say that because we have lost touch in this regard the last few months. But she wrote me this email not too long after we started dialoguing on this topic. And she said to me, like you said, it's not a list of rules. And when you put it like you did, it makes you want to spend time with him doing other things besides what you do all week. She was talking particularly about Sabbath keeping. She said, it's funny because I used to watch movies a lot on Friday nights, not saying I never do anymore, but the desire to read and spend time in the Bible has been more appealing to me lately than turning on the TV to watch another movie. I feel like my heart is changing. Notice what she said. I feel like my behavior is changing, right? No. She said, I feel like my heart is changing in a good way. Not because someone has told me that it's wrong to watch TV on Sabbath, but because I don't want to. Pray for that young lady. I won't tell you her name, but pray for her. She's still a work in progress. But even though she's a work in progress, it doesn't negate the heart change that's going on in her life. I want to read this last quotation for you and then I'm going to sit down. You know this. Desire of Ages, page 668. All true obedience comes from the heart. All true. Apparently there's a false obedience, right? All true obedience comes from the heart. 
It was heart work with whom? Christ. And if we consent, that's one of my favorite words that Ellen White uses. If we consent, because it implies two things. One, that it's a lot easier than we've made it out to be. And two, that God still is not going to overpower our freedom to choose. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall but be carrying out our own impulses. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing his service. Not as a means of getting something in return, but as a means of expressing our gratitude based upon the great breadth of our debt that should be ours over and against the forgiveness he has freely given us. Friends, God is calling for your heart. He's calling for your heart. He doesn't... This may sound shocking. He's not calling for your obedience. He's calling for your heart. He said, you give me your heart. You give me your heart. And Ezekiel 36 says, if, we, if God gives us a new heart in exchange for our old heart, he will cause us to walk in his ways. He will cause us to walk in his ways. He just asks us to give him our sin-polluted heart, and he will give us a new heart of flesh. That's the new covenant right there. That's the new covenant. Father in heaven, I want to confess my constant actions that aren't flowing from my heart. They're flowing from the desire to be recognized. They're flowing from the desire to have somebody pat me on the back and say, good job. They flow from the desire that I can avoid getting into hot water with my church members, my conference president, my wife. Lord, you want to give me a new heart, a heart of flesh. You want to take the heart of stone out of me and give me that heart of flesh. And in so doing, I will be able to finally come to the realization that I have been forgiven much. It's not about me serving you for so many years. It's about you serving me for so many years. And I don't expect you to do it going forward, even though you will. I'm not in this, Lord, because of what I'm trying to get out of you, but, but because of what I can give to you. And that is a heart devotion with no 
pretense of trying to gain eternity for my own benefit. No pretense of trying to save myself, but the pretense of trying to save you. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.